What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things. We contemplate them. We turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. My countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, we're not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it, and today... We're going to talk about a Christian's journey, the roadmap for the Christian from the beginning to the end. And we're going to use as markers and guideposts on that roadmap the Beatitudes. I love a study of the Sermon on the Mount. I took probably about four months, and I preached through the the Sermon on the Mount. So many great lessons, an overview, organization, all of that good stuff. And I probably spent three or four weeks on the Beatitudes. I can give an overview of the Beatitudes in about five minutes, or I can take five weeks. There's so much in there. If you are so inclined, you can support the Cogitations podcast directly by going to www.patreon.com forward slash near churches where you can become a patron. And you can also support digitalbiblestudy.org through uh, locals and through the digitalbiblestudy.org YouTube channel. You can also do super chats and give stars on the live stream, and uh, you don't understand how much that helps out. I will tell you this by way of update on my ministry in Canada. Uh, We just sent a $3,500 e-transfer to the uh, immigration official, to the, not the official, the... um, immigration consultant that's handling our case. Uh, We have made progress. Things are going well. And uh, I think we've got somebody that's familiar enough with our path to uh, permanent residence that they can get this sorted out. But the church up here still needs support um, because, one, it's either I I pay for uh, the immigration stuff and, and... and 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 take money from the treasury, or I pay for my food, and the church has to pay me money from the treasury. Money is fungible in that way. So, um, if you support the church right now, uh, some that money is going to be going to help support the brewers uh, for buying food, grocery, well, food and groceries, but food, uh, utilities, and rent. So that being said. If you know of a congregation that would like to uh, talk to me about this work, whether they want to support it or whether or not they want to oversee it, we were, we are looking for a sponsoring kind of overseeing congregation in the States where we can uh, communicate to other churches through them. So, uh, so anyway, if you know of anybody or anything like that, I'm, I'm counting on word of mouth to, to really help us out. This, this work needs supported and it's going to get pretty tight in the next couple of months. So uh, that's about all I'm going to say about that. Now, uh, let me see. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. We are going to talk about, um, we're, we're going to talk about a Christian's journey. We're going to look at the Beatitudes and see what they teach, and then we're going to kind of look at an allegorical an allegorical perspective of the Beatitudes. Now, let me go and check my comment section before I get started. Good evening, everybody. And uh, 
Yes, it is such a blessing to study with everyone. Gwen Cooper, good evening. Mercy, a happy Tuesday. Looking forward to you sharing your thoughts this evening. Well, thank you very much. And uh, good evening from Jenny Blackwell. Good evening to you, sister. And uh, Holly Hamilton, of course, Gwen Cooper, uh, Loretta Simon, and uh, she's got to get off here, I believe. Uh, Jewel Pender's got to go. Loretta Simon. No, Loretta Simon. It looks like she's staying. I messed that up. And uh, Hey Lewis says, I found Brother Tony's lessons on Christ as the angel of the Lord. Mercy, I will share. Don't mind if you ask, uh, if you ask and he elaborate again. Is this leading? <laughs> no, it's not leading. Um, yeah, so the I would I will take just a few minutes before the before I go to my text here. Um, obviously, I can't cover it as deep as I did in that lesson or or podcast that I did. Whatever piece of content you found, but in my it's my conviction that every time you see, um, in in the Bible, God on Earth, it is the second member of the Godhead even whenever that particular entity is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Now, that does not mean that whenever um, an angel of the Lord shows up and the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used, that does not mean that that is the second member of the Godhead. It's all about context. For instance, and it's my conviction in the burning bush, uh, that's the second member of the Godhead. It is my conviction that on Mount Sinai, the entity that Moses saw the hinder parts of was the second member of the Godhead referred to as the angel of the Lord in the, in the New Testament. Joshua chapter 5, the Lord of Sabaoth, is, um, that's the second member of the Godhead. That, that, that's, that, one, that one's pretty cut and dry. Uh, in fact, the, the reason we know that was the second member of the Godhead is because uh, that entity allowed Joshua to worship him. And we know that angels don't allow men to worship them. So anyway, I, it's just it's just a, an academic pursuit. I find it very interesting. And um, hey, Lewis says, I know, I don't know why we are so fascinated about it, but I for one am. Thank you, Brother Tony. Well, you're welcome. And let me tell you something. Do you want to, it's, it's, it's saying that to me is like saying sick them uh, to a dog. I, I love talking about stuff like that. Of course, sometimes it's very difficult to talk about it off the cuff, uh, especially abstract ideas that are nebulous and, and difficult to understand that, that aren't cut and dry. You know I mean? Look, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. I mean, you can't argue about that. I mean, well, I guess you could argue about that, but you got to change the rules of grammar and the definition of words in order to get something out of that besides he that believeth and is baptized will be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. But when it comes to, you know, when, when a phrase, when the phrase the angel of the Lord is used in the Old Testament, whoops, not more, we better move this over here. Um, when the phrase, when the, when, when the phrase the angel of the Lord is used in the Old Testament, is that talking about the second member of the Godhead, or is that talking about an angel of the Lord, but the reason the definite article is used is because it's talking about this specific angel of the Lord? Well, that's a little bit more difficult. That'll, that'll wrinkle your brain some. And I'm so thankful for good Christian brothers and sisters that are able to discuss those things like that with me and not, and not necessarily agree with me sometimes. 
but also understand that it is an academic pursuit and we don't have to have a falling out about it. I think our brothers and sisters around the world need to learn how to disagree more because, quite frankly, there is more about which you have liberty to disagree than there is which you have legislation about which to agree. I think I, I, I messed that up trying not to end my sentence in a preposition. Let me, let me say it in the country way. There's more you got to agree on than you, than, than, than you have to agree. Than, than you have to, there, there, there's, more that you, there's more that you've got to, um, hold on a second. There's less that you have to agree on than you, than you, than you, uh, than you can disagree on. That's such an odd statement. I got to find a succinct way of putting it. Very little do we have to agree on. There is much more in the Bible that is not cut and dry. Now, does that mean that we can't come to a knowledge of the truth? Does that mean we cannot achieve the unity that is that Jesus prays for in John 17? Well, God forbid. But that's where a lesson on where God legislates. Where God legislates, there is no room for disagreement. We cannot agree to disagree. But where there's an academic pursuit, then then we can agree to disagree. In fact, it, it happened uh, in this little old congregation up here in Canada just the other night. We were talking about something, and uh, one of our members, I was talking to him after class. He said, you know, I've, uh, he said, I, I've, I've heard what you've said before, and I, I'm, I'm familiar with what you've said, and it makes sense the way you put it tonight. I just don't know if I agree with it fully. And I, to which I replied, well, you know, you don't have to. Uh, you know, you're chewing on it. He said, yeah, yeah, I've got to think about it. Well, what's wrong with that? I mean, am I the arbiter of every little bitty piece of academic academia from Scripture that somebody's got to believe on or, or disbelieve about? No. So we need to we, we need to practice disagreeing more. I think the reason we used to be more unified is because those giants of the faith, Gus Nichols, Foy Wallace, um, Gus Nichols and Foy Wallace, are the only two that come to mind. Isn't that sad? That's what I get from shooting from the hill. But you understand, all of these men had Johnny Ramsey, um, Andrew Conley, all of these men had disagreements and differences of conviction on academic pursuits. Why did you know that? Why did, why did somebody in Tennessee know Andrew Conley's position on some, uh, on some academic pursuit, and he's all the way in Texas? It's because people argued about it. It's because those brethren were able to discuss it, and they were able to argue it out, and they were still able to remain brethren. I think what has happened in modernity is we take all of the young men who show an aptitude for scholarly pursuits and we remove them from our midst and send them off to a seminary school and then they have to go somewhere else. They can't come back home. Think about that. So now what you have is you have a congregation of people and there's one man there who is a Bible scholar and 
there's he teaches his particular um, uh, matters of of scruple. There's nothing wrong with teaching your matter of scruple as long as you teach it for a ma- as a matter of scruple. I disagree vehemently with one of my teachers about this. Um, I think preachers need to teach their scruples from the pulpit, but they need to teach them in such a way where it's understood that they're scruple. Um, and they teach these matters of academic pursuit. And because there, we, we have gutted our congregations of people, young men, who have an aptitude for scholarly pursuit and sent them away from us, there's no one there to challenge this man. And so we have created a bunch of preacher followers without even realizing it. And we have made a pastoral system, I think, um, which is sad. And um, it's, it's, not, it's, only, it's not a pastoral system in name, but it is a pastoral system in function. Um, I, I talked about this with Aaron Dodson on the Christianity Now podcast, and um, we fleshed it out a little bit. You know, um, you, if, I, if I go to a congregation and I teach, well, for instance, we've got Jonathan commenting about Guy and Woods and Gus Nichols. They would discuss the Holy Spirit indwelling, but both respectful and were brethren to the end of it. If I go to a congregation and I teach through Acts chapter 2 the way I am convicted that it needs to be taught, uh, if, if, if that congregation has had a preacher there that, that holds an opposite view of me, I get run out of the building. And it's happened before, by the way. Because people just can't understand that there's a different view than what they would hold, and the people that are running you out of the building, they aren't even well-studied enough to be qualified to hold a position. In other words, I know their position better than they do, and it's not a position that I believe. And that's sadly, that's the way it is with most cases. Our our level of of Bible of, of Bible scholar has has gone down over the years, and it, and and I think it's because you know, I'm a young man turns you know going into adolescence in sixteen seventeen, and he's starting read he's starting to read extra biblical material history, stuff like that, what do we do? Oh, you need to go to the Memphis School of Preaching. You need to go to Bear Valley. You need to go to Freed Hardeman. You need to go to Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies. You need to go to Brown Trail. Really? Why? There's nobody in the congregation that can teach him? What are you paying the preacher forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year for? Something to think about. And then what happens? You rob your congregation of a valuable asset. And then all you end up with is people who don't have an aptitude for scholarly endeavors. And that has nothing to do with the Beatitudes. Let's talk about the Beatitudes. I have now stepped down off my soapbox. Dale Simon, thank you. I, I, I got the equivalent of a Facebook amen. She says, that is so true. I appreciate that. That's right, Jonathan. Faithful men teaching faithful men in each congregation. Now, I need to say this before I go on. Don't take from this that I'm down on preaching schools. I'm not. 
I think they serve a purpose. I think we ought to have them. And I'm think, I, I'm, I think they are a good thing. I just think we need to use them differently. I don't think they need to be treated as a seminary school. I think that I think that a letter of commendation from an eldership of a of a congregation ought to carry as much weight as a bachelor equivalent Bible diploma from a two year preaching school. I really do. But I would say if you've got a man that ha- if you've got a young man that shows that aptitude, you spend a lot of time and money in training him and you spend the time and money in training him and getting him to stay. And when he's young and he's starting out and he's a newlywed, 20 years old, you've already been formally training him and making sure he's trained so he has three or four years of Bible study under his belt in a formal way, then what you do is, hey, look, I understand that you're working this job at the factory, but we need a Bible class teacher, and um, you need to make some money. How would $400 a month help you in your budget for you and your new wife? Oh, well, it would help great. Good. So teach our Sunday school class, and we're going to give you $100 a week. Why couldn't we do that? We waste $400 a month on stupider stuff, and I'm not saying that's stupid. I got to stop this. This That's what the podcast is going to be about, but let's not do that. Here's the journey of a Christian, all right? Let's read the Beatitudes. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a high, on a mountain, rather. I'm reading the King James, looking at the New King James. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and here they go, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and shall say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets." who were before you. Amen. Now, these beatitudes were given to a group of people who were downtrodden, who were theologically and socially oppressed by an aristocratic rabbinical class, and they carried a heavy yoke. In fact, you'll remember the last few verses of Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in spirit. My, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find rest for your soul. They needed it. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born. 
and they won't even expend the energy stored up in one of their fa little fingers to try to lift that burden, but they're going to make you do it. These people were downtrodden. They didn't know what they could do. They were, they were under the thumb of the rabbinical system. So they said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit that's the kingdom of heavens, the, the kingdom of heaven. The, rab, the rabbinical order, the Pharisees and all these people, they looked at Jesus' audience as the dregs. We don't want these people. Look at them. Jesus is like, that's exactly the people who I come to minister to. This idea of poor in spirit carries with it the idea of someone who has achieved a lofty goal, who has climbed a lofty mountain and then fallen back down again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you have reached the pit, if you have reached the pinnacle of success only to have your hopes and dreams dashed, you have fallen from your former glory. You're poor in spirit because it is only from a position from which, uh, from, uh, it's only from that position when you realize you're in that position that you know that you can't get back there by yourself. I would say in the context that the children of Israel, think about all of the glory that they achieved through God in the past. Think about under the days of Solomon and David, or David and Solomon, David first, then Solomon. But they fell. Nebuchadnezzar came and hauled off the implements of worship. They were in Babylon for 70 years. They came back to a destroyed temple. They started rebuilding the temple. They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the city. We are poor in spirit. We Well, the book of Haggai, chapter 2, uh, Haggai tells the people, what do you consider this temple? Those of you that know it in its former glory, what do you see now? Or do you see a building that's just a, a, a husk of what it used to be? Understand that there's going to, this, this building here, although it did not achieve the glories of the temple of Solomon, is going to be more glorious than its, than its predecessor. Why? Well, because Messiah is going to walk its ground. This is the temple that's going to be standing whenever Jesus comes and whenever Jesus comes to the Jews. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's these poor in spirit. It's these people that have fallen from a lofty height and are destitute and can't do anything for themselves and, and understand it. Because you're not poor in spirit if you don't understand that you're poor in spirit. If you're if you're poor in spirit but are do not understand that you're poor in spirit, then you're not really poor in spirit. You're just delusional and you suffer from another set of issues. That's the idea. All right. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, why would you be mourning? Because you're poor in spirit. Because you understand the destitute condition that you're in. The Jews, the, the, these, these Israelites that were flocking to Jesus, they could tell that never a man spake such as this. 
He speaks plainly so that everybody can understand him. He doesn't go to the oral traditions. He doesn't go to the Talmud. He goes to the Torah. He teaches us how to be practitioners of the law of Moses the way God intended for us to be practitioners of the law of Moses, and it's different. This man's not a hypocrite like these other people say. So we're going to go to him because this rabbinical system hasn't done anything for us. So they were mourning for their position. Well, if, you're, if, you, if you mourn for your position, the good news is you're going to be comforted. And there was comfort given to the Israelites, whether was it not? Who is Jesus to us? What does the book of John, our, our, our brother, the apostle John, in, in 1 John chapter 2, what does he call Jesus? He uses the same word that the, he, he uses in John 14 to describe the Holy Spirit, parakletos. In a sense, Jesus is our advocate for sure. But wouldn't it be a great comfort to know we had somebody advocating on our behalf? Paracletos is comforter, folks. Are you poor in spirit? Have you fallen from a lofty height? Well, you're ready for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours for the taking. Are you mourning because of your downcast? Because of your being cast down? Well, then you're going to be comforted. Because the path to the kingdom of heaven starts at Jesus. It starts at the source of comfort. Remember Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 4. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, God of all mer- the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In order for you to live a life commensurate with the will of God, you cannot be a weakling. You cannot be a limp noodle. Psalm Psalm 37. Let's go read Psalm 37 and let's notice something about meekness. A meek man is a dangerous man. A meek man is a man capable of violence. A meek man is a man capable of doling out death and destruction. But he keeps it under control. Psalm 37, verse 11. Well, actually, let's go to verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Those that wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Remember that because of the rules of of Hebrew poetry and parallelism, we now know who will inherit the earth, those who shall wait on the Lord. For yet a little while, the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but you won't be able to find him but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. They that wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The meek are people 
who trust in God. But there's more. Listen to it. The meat shall inherit the earth and delight in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bow shall be, ta- shall be broken. Now listen. Reading this poetry, it is evident, even if you weren't a Hebrew scholar, even if you didn't do hours and hours of research on the word that, or on the Hebrew word that meek translates, you would know that a meek individual is the antithesis of the wicked individual in the context. And whatever the wicked is, the meek is, but for the opposite reasons. You see, the wicked plots against the just. Well, what would the meek do? The meek then would plot for the just. The, the wicked gnashes at him with his teeth. Well, the wicked, well, the meek would not do that. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. At the meek, the Lord doesn't laugh. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and the bow and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy. Well, the meek have a sword and have a bow, and they are not afraid to use it. In fact, they will use it. But for what will they use it? To lift up, to strengthen the poor and the needy, and to slay those who are of froward shady conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, the the wicked. The meek, their sword shall strengthen their heart. Their bow shall be strengthened. Their bow shall not be broken. Folks, the meek have a sword and a bow and are willing to use it to protect the just. All right? Why will the meek inherit the earth? Because they will protect it. They will be good stewards of it. They will enact order, righteousness, justice. It's really the archetypal Superman. Truth, justice, and the American way. What used to be the American way, I I don't think they say truth, justice, and the American way anymore, but the American way used to be Judeo-Christian values. You're downtrodden. You've fallen from a lofty height. And now you're ready for the kingdom of heaven. You're poor in spirit. You mourn because of your position. but you know where the source of comfort is. And you have a large backbone. You're strengthened. And you stand your ground against wickedness and injustice. You help people who you can. Verse 6, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Once you fall from a lofty height and you mourn that place and you're comforted, and because of the fact that you're comforted, you are strengthened and you are able to be meek to have that strength under control, then you are going to pursue, you're going to orient yourself towards the highest possible good. You're going to orient yourself towards the highest possible good of which you can conceive. And that's God Almighty. You're going to live for Him. And you're going to be filled because when you go to the well of the Lord, you will not come away thirsty. You will not come away empty. Blessed are the merciful. Oh, this is a good one. As you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, as one who is meek, who protects the downtrodden and the and the and the poor and the just, you are going to be merciful. Why? Because you have been shown mercy. You know what mercy looks like because you fell from a lofty height and you needed comforted. You did not needed, you did not need scold, scolded. You needed comforted. And that made you stronger. So what you're going to do is whenever you meet somebody who has fallen from a lofty height, you are going to help them as much as you can and, and comfort them. Uh, Micah 6, 8. My, Micah 6, 8. But he hath showed thee, O man, and what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. To do justice. We know what is right, and we know the, the, the God of all the heavens will do right, and we love mercy because he has been merciful to us, and we walk humbly with our God because we know our place, because of the mercy that he's shown us. So blessed are the uh, merciful so we show mercy to other people. Why? Because he showed mercy to us, and we understand that we needed it. And it comforted us, and it made us stronger so we could be meek. Also, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and you leave undone the weightier matters of the law. Listen to it, folks. Lean in and listen. Justice, mercy, faith. What is faith but walking humbly with your God? Jesus goes on to say, These ought you to have done, and not to have left the others undone. They were so worried about the little jot and tittles and marking their boxes, but they forgot what he told the people all the way back in Malachi. He hath showed thee, O man, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justice, love, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Being faithful, justice, mercy, faith, the way to your matters of the law, faith is walking humbly, knowing your place, with God. If you are merciful, you are by nature humble because you know your place. 
It is not up on you. It is not incumbent upon you to mete out justice. You let God take care of it. That doesn't mean we don't hold people up to a standard. That doesn't mean we don't practice church discipline. That doesn't mean we don't hold us up to a standard. It just means that we're long-suffering and we don't always give people that which they deserve. And if you are merciful, then you will obtain mercy. I don't want to meet my God on the day of judgment having not been merciful. As such, I kind of have in years past, and so I suppose this means that I'm exactly where I need to be. I've kind of in years past gone from being called a, a, a what is it, a radical conservative no, I can't remember the, the anyway, a, a rank, yeah, radical conservative. I've, I've gone from that to being a rank liberal. Well, Tony, you just don't have the guts to stand against sin. I contraire, mon frere, let me tell you something, what I have the guts to do. You don't know what I've stood against. You don't know the confrontation that I've had. You don't know the times I've had to stand against sin publicly. You don't know the times I've had to stand against sin where it's cost me a job. So just because you see me giving somebody a pass, just because I'm not willing to shoot our wounded, doesn't mean I don't stand for righteousness. It just means that I want to go before Jesus on a day of judgment with as much mercy on my books as I can possibly have. And if I make a mistake and I'm merciful for where, where I shouldn't, I ask my God to forgive me of that. And I think, and this may sound weird, I may not have this right logically, but I think if I'm going to make a mistake, I would rather make a mistake on the side of being merciful than, than, than not. I'd, I'd rather get to Jesus and say, you know what, Tony, you were too merciful. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You tell me. Blessed are the pure in heart. If you get to the point from falling from that lofty height, being poor in spirit to where you're pure in heart, you're going to see God practically, you know, in a practical way. Once that happens, you're going to do things that make for peace. Now, peace is very interesting. Peace is not pacifism. Wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable. I remember a speech given by Ronald Reagan talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I believe it was Omar Gaddafi that he said, look, you can have peace. You can have it right now. You can have it within the next minute. It's unconditional surrender. You will no longer hold us hostage with your nuclear weapons, all that good stuff. I, I suppose, I suppose that Christians can never truly live peaceably 
in a world full of sin. However, I am commanded by my brother, the Apostle Paul, actually by God through the Holy Spirit and the pen of my brother, the Apostle Paul, to as much as lieth in me, live peaceably with all men. That indicates that I will not be able to sometimes. But it's a commandment to try nonetheless. I think the implication, if you're a peacemaker, what are you doing? How do you make peace with somebody who's living in the world of sin? If wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable. If enmity with the world is, or friendship with the world is enmity with God? Well, <laughs> you teach those people the Bible, and you teach them about Jesus, and you convert them to, the, to Jesus. So if you're a peacemaker, you're an evangelist. If you're a peacemaker, you leave people, you, you influence people to God. What is the Great Commission? What's the thing that Jesus said, hey, this is, this is what I want you to do. I'm leaving you, and here's what I want you to do. He said, go into all the world and preach a gospel to every creature. He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you, you want to be a peacemaker? Fulfill your fundamental role as a child of God. I think it's interesting in Acts chapter 11 that they weren't called Christians until they took the gospel to the Jews. I mean, to the Gentiles. Think about that. Go read Ephesians chapter 3 and understand the purpose of the church and then ask yourself, why weren't they called Christians before Antioch? It's because the first time in history the church uh, achieved its true purpose was whenever they started taking the gospel in large scale to the Gentiles. That's my conviction. You don't have to believe me, but I just want you to give it some thought. Can you really be called a child of God if you don't ever evangelize? I mean, that's the Great Commission. That's all it's, all, it's what God said to do. I hope I didn't freeze up for long. All right. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you differentiate yourself from the masses, by nature you're going to be persecuted because nobody likes anybody that's different. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It comes full circle. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
you have climbed a lofty mountain and achieved lofty a lofty goal and you've been brought back down. Well, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're you're going to you're going to mourn, but you'll be comforted. You need to be meek, be strong, you'll inherit the earth. You need to hunger and thirst after righteousness and you'll be filled. You're not going to go away from the well thirsty and empty. Because you understand who you are and where you've fallen from and what it took to get you back, you're going to be mercy, merciful, so you're going to obtain mercy and you're climbing back up that lofty height again and you're doing it because you're pure in spirit. You're seeking God. God lives in the lofty heights. And you're going to be a peacemaker. You're going to help as many people get there as you possibly can. And then once you get there, you're going to be persecuted again. And you may fall, my brethren, but you won't fall as far because you'll be stronger for it. What happens to an ingot to a, that, that passes, well, not an ingot, what happens to a, a chunk of ore when it passes through the fire? All the impurities burn off. And then, you know, you can put that in the fire again. Nothing burns, it just melts. Isn't that wonderful? All your gold, it may oxidize. You know, I've seen oxidized gold. I've seen I've seen uh tarnished uh silver. You know the best way to get silver untarnished? Now, don't do this to your to your if you have silver knives and forks, don't do this to them unless you don't want your knives and forks anymore. But if you have tarnished silver and you want it to to be to bring it back to its luster and shine, pass it through a fire. It'll melt, it'll lose its form, but once it hardens again, it'll have a shine to it. You know, you can do that with lead. Lead is very dull, but when you pass it through a fire, it, it gets a luster to it. It'll start shining again. Well, think about that. Oh, I'm freezing on and off. That's terrible. Maybe this is good enough to to get. Um, all right. So anyway, um, hold on. Somebody asked me a question. I have come to bring you a sword? Question mark. I don't. Hey, Lewis. I don't understand that question. And. Uh, Awesome. Good to see you, Scott Wall. And hey, Lewis says toothpaste. Connie says, and I'm freezing off and on. I hope I hope this is good enough to get a good recording. And uh, anyway, and Diana said no freezing here. Oh well, that's good. So maybe okay. Anyway, let me get through this now. So we we've 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 mapped this journey, and now we are persecuted. And of course, blessed are you when they revile you. This is a recapitulation of verse 10. Basically, it's a further explanation, not a recapitulation. It's a further explanation. He's he's letting you know what the persecution is going to be. Blessed are they when they revile blessed are you, rather, when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Your response to that. And if you have gone through this path, the, the path of the Beatitudes, if you were poor in spirit, 
if you are mourn, if you are meek, uh, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you are merciful, if you are pure in heart, if you become a peacemaker, well, then you're going to be persecuted. But here's your response. And this is the Christian's response. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. In the context, Jesus is talking to um, descendants of Abraham who were persecuted and who were religious outcasts. And he's saying, you wear that like a badge of honor. I think about this meme from this terrible cartoon, filthy cartoon called Rick and Morty. And Rick is up on the stage and the crowd is booing him. And, and he's shaking his fist and says, I don't care about your booze because I've seen what makes you cheer. Let me tell you something. That's profound. They shouldn't care. The masses. The masses shouldn't care what the rabbinical system and the Jewish leadership thought of them. They shouldn't care whether or not they approve of them or disapprove of them because they've seen what they approve of. And I'll make this personal. Tony, if you uh, if you go down this path, you're not you're not going to be invited to the lectures. You're not going to be invited for gospel. You're going to be kicked off the gospel meeting circuit, as it were, stuff like that. To which I replied, I don't care about their disapproval because I've seen who they approve of and what they approve of. I'm not living my life and I'm not conducting my ministry and ordering my life in Christ for the approval of others. Please go to uh, Proverbs 27, 1 through 8. So, if you look at the Beatitudes, you can map your Christian journey. Before you were in Christ, you were on top of the world. You thought that everything was okay, but you, ha you had to experience a fall. So you became poor in spirit. And then you had to mourn because if you never mourned, you would never turn to the source of comfort. And then you had to have an inner core of strength to make a change. Verse 5. And then once you made that change, you had to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness in order to continue that journey. And then once you arrived at your destination of in Christ, you, you had to understand how much mercy was shown to you. So therefore, it's only natural for you to show mercy to others. So you became merciful. And that caused you to see people through a different light. 
All of a sudden, you don't see people as a bunch of old terrible sinners. You see them as people who were in the same situation that you were used to be that you used to be in, as people who were on top of the world but have fallen from a lofty height and just need some help. So you look at them through a pure heart, and you will see God in every one of them, and you you will see them as. Uh, when I say see God in every one of them, um, you will see beings that are made in the image of God. And then you will want to make peace between you and them. And so you're going to try to convert them to Christ, thus earning the moniker son of God or daughter, as the case may be. Oh, but it's going to come with persecution because you've differentiated yourself from the masses. But as you're being persecuted, you can understand that the kingdom of heaven is yours. You're a citizen of the kingdom. And even though they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, you can rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for you know that your reward in heaven is so much greater than any persecution and trial that you can find on earth. And you can take that and map from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, all the way to Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, and you can expand that or condense that into any length of life for a Christian. And I just think that's real cool. So I guess if we have to draw an an admonition or an encouragement or something for tonight, make it be this. Understand where you are on your Christian journey. Make sure that you exemplify these beatitudes. And when you're persecuted, when they say all manner of evil about you, when they revile you, you hold your head up high. You don't give an inch. You draw a line in the sand and say, "Not you. You do what you want to do over there. You, you. I can't. But right here, it's not coming. Not another father. It stops with me. And no matter what they do to you, you know that what's waiting in heaven is better. And that's all I've got, folks. All right, good. That's it. Uh, Connie Barnes says, we have to remember that they were being physically persecuted. Uh, For the most part, we don't have to suffer as they did. Some in other countries do, but hopefully we will not ever see that kind of persecution. Yeah, so they, yeah, that was a weird oppression. I don't know that the, I don't know how much, the Christians were being persecuted, but the, the people to whom Jesus spake, they weren't being physically persecuted. Um they were just under a very oppressive regime. Um, I guess, I guess, I, I guess it was enough. I would say physical, but I guess what Connie, what I, what the word physically brings to mind is being drawn and quartered, being whipped, being threatened, being thrown to lions. Like they weren't being martyred, you know, but anyway, that's, I, 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 I think, the broad definition of the term physically, yes, they were being physically persecuted. In Western culture, we typically do not 
get the physical persecution. All right, Scott Walsh says you are not living to their standard uh, to their standards, but to and by the truth. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, Diana Harden says, "Proud of you, Tony, and the stand you take." Years ago, my daddy lost his preaching job for taking a stand when the congregation wanted to go in a more liberal direction. We need more like you two. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've got a friend back in Arkansas. I hadn't talked to him in a few years, but um, he he got fired over a right interpretation of Matthew nineteen nine. You know, <laughs> hey Lewis, you heard it. Not another father. John D. Berry also says, we need to get busy. We need to quit. We need to get off our backsides of do nothing and quit leaning back on our elbows of do less. That's it, Elaine. Yes, the, the Beatitudes, yeah, you can, you, can, you can broaden it out to the entire Christian life or you can, or you can shrink it down um, to specific scenarios within a Christian life. It's such a wonderful, I mean, it's just amazing. Jesus is really smart. That's what I'm trying to say. Awesome. Hey, Lewis, I'm glad you've been encouraged. Uh-oh, totally lost the feed. That's not good. And uh, all right. So I think we're having issues. Um, my signal, y'all, is strong. So, yeah, hopefully everything's okay. Uh, hopefully I got a good recording. But I'm going to shut her down. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, read those Beatitudes, map out where you are in that cycle, and uh, understand that, that you can ma you can use that, that little cycle for uh, very small scenarios, or you can map it through your whole life. It's very interesting, the path of a Christian. And uh, this has been Tony Brewer with Cogitations. This episode is powered by digitalbiblestudy.org. If you want to support us, remember, you can look at the show notes and do that. And uh, that's all I've got here because of technical difficulties. God bless you. Thank you so much for your encouragement, Digital Bible Study family. And we'll catch you on the flip side.